So we're in a very brief uh, May sermon series called Life's Second Mountain. And the series is based upon the words of King Solomon found in the book of Ecclesiastes as well as on a book that was recently published by uh, David Brooks called The Second Mountain. But let me give you just a, a quick review of what we talked about last Sunday on Mother's Day before we push forward. On the first mountain of life, we seek to establish ourselves. We leave home, we get our education, we break away from our parents, we become independent. We start to build a career and we work towards success. Uh, this is the mountain where upward mobility and economic opportunity is very important. So is survival as well. We want to be respected by other people. We want to do things in our lives that will matter and that will be viewed as significant, as important. On the first mountain, there's a lot of keeping score. How do I measure up? How am I doing? What do other people think and say about me? How do they feel about me? On the first mountain of life, there's also a lot of fear. Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of being judged, fear of not measuring up, fear of not gaining the respect or the recognition that we believe we deserve or that we feel that we deserve. Ego plays a big role in the first mountain of life. Ego drives us to become successful, but it also drives our disappointment when we don't achieve what we had hoped. Oftentimes, the first mountain is equated with the rat race of life, uh, the grind, uh, all the hard work, doing the same thing day in and, and day out. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, is reflecting on his life towards the end of his life and he writes that all the things that he did to pursue pleasure in life, all the things that he did to pursue life's first mountain, he writes this in chapter 2. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water the forest of growing trees. I brought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions and herds of flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and the, uh, of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and chasing after the wind." And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's Solomon reflecting. Usually there comes a point in life when we either choose to get off the first mountain or something happens to throw us off the first mountain. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the suicide of a friend or a family member. And we decide that there has to be more to life than all the things that we were chasing because all the things that we have been chasing simply do not bring us lasting joy. Fun, yes. Happiness for a little while, 
but lasting joy, not so much. And so the second mountain requires a major shift in our thinking and in our priorities. David Brooks says, if the first mountain is about building up the ego and defining the self, the second mountain is about shedding the ego and losing the self. If the first mountain is about acquisition, the second mountain is about contribution. If the first mountain is elitist, moving up, the second mountain is egalitarian, planting yourself amid those who need and walking arm in arm with them. So today I want to talk about what it looks like to live on the second mountain or to live with a second mountain mindset in life. And it's not because I have this completely figured out, I don't, but because I think that life has far more meaning when we learn to live on the second mountain. And so I want to do this based on what Brooks identifies as being the four key commitments that we make in life that lead us to meaning and to connection and that give us the joy uh, that he's talking about on the second mountain. The first commitment, he says, is to a vocation. Or you could also say it's to a passion. We should all ask the question, where does our passion in life meet the world's greatest need? And that's where we should invest our time, our energy, and our money, because that's where we will become most alive. I said last week that my vocation, or, or vocation, your vocation, our vocation, may or may not completely align with your job. My vocation, my passion is to challenge people to reflect upon the meaning of life and to learn and grow from the wisdom and teachings of Jesus Christ. So my vocation has become my career, but it doesn't mean that it's always easy. It doesn't mean that it's not sometimes exhausting. It doesn't mean that there aren't parts of our vocation or our career that don't wear us out and leave us worn out. My old friend and mentor, Will Kime, some of you remember him, he preached here a couple times. He lost his battle to cancer a couple years ago. And he once said that if you can find something that you love to do in life, and then if you can find somebody that will pay you to do it, then you never have to work a day in your life. And I always thought that was pretty interesting uh, advice. Where does your deepest passion meet the needs of the world? And guess what? That might change as you get older. What you're passionate about at 25 may not be the same as when you were 45 or 65. Brooks talks about Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychologist who survived the Holocaust. And during his time in the concentration camp, when he didn't know if he was going to live or die, Frankl made some major discoveries. He realized that the career question that many of us ask what do I want from life? What can I do to make myself happy in life? Are not necessarily the right questions. The real questions that we should all wrestle with revolve around this. What is life asking of me? What am I being called to do to make this world a better place to live? The question of career is often very self-focused. What can I get out of my life? But the question of vocation is a little bit different. What is life asking of me? And no, sometimes you can't just give up your job or your career and go off and chase your passion. 
But we should all identify our passion in life and seek to use that passion to help and to serve other people. That's why we try to get everybody at Woodmont to have a ministry where you are serving and you are involved in helping other people. You may not look at your job as a true vocation, but I promise you, you can find a way to incorporate your passion, your vocation into your job if you want to. The second part of living on the second mountain is that we learn to live for relationships. Or Brooke says we make a commitment to marriage and to family, but really it goes beyond that. It's about relationships. We begin to understand that the quality of our lives is directly tied, directly tied to the quality of our relationships. In Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon writes this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up the other, but woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm all alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is incredible wisdom. Life is not to be lived alone. What we are facing in our culture right now, I believe, is a crisis of loneliness, which then leads to tribalism. One leads to the other. Ben Sass is a very sharp senator from Nebraska, junior senator from Nebraska, and he spoke in Nashville a couple of weeks ago at the end of April. And uh, Ben Sass has a couple of great books out. His most recent one is called Them, why we hate each other and how to heal. And he says this, there is a growing consensus that the number one health crisis in America right now is not cancer, it's not obesity, it's not heart disease, it's loneliness. And he's right. David Brooks says this, the reason American lives are shorter today is the increase in the so-called deaths of despair, suicide, drug overdoses, liver problems, and so on. And those in turn are caused by the social isolation that is all around us. For the first time since 1962 and 1963, we have had back-to-back -back years in America where the life expectancy has dropped. Think about that. For the first time in over 50 years, the life expectancy in this country has actually gone down. How did this happen? How did this social isolation crisis come about? Aren't we more connected than we've ever been before? We're not. And what's really sad is that many of us are not doing anything to help this. We don't have family dinners around the table. We don't join a small group when we know we should. We don't intentionally work on our friendships and there is no pain in life like the pain of loneliness. And there's no pain in relationships like being lonely in a marriage. Life is not meant to be lived this way. We are meant to live together. We are meant to share life together. And when we don't do this, then life feels incomplete because it is. Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. When it comes to marriage and family life, we have to be 
intentional about these things. We have to work to cultivate our relationships in life. We cannot put them on cruise control and just expect them to run automatically or just run by themselves. It just doesn't happen. It's one of the most common mistakes that's made. When Megan and I went on our anniversary trip, you know, we spent time uh, just connecting and talking, but also saying, you know, why didn't we do something every year, take a trip, just the two of us every year? Why do we wait for the big anniversaries, like five or ten? You have to be intentional in your relationship. You have to be intentional with your children. These things don't just happen by themselves. The third component of living on the second mountain is a deep commitment to a faith, spirituality, and then for some people who may not be religious, they might say to a philosophy. But I'm going to focus on faith and spirituality. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus was asked about which commandment in the law is the greatest, what did he say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, he said, hang all the law and the prophets. These two commandments trump everything else. Back to Viktor Frankl. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he argues that as human beings, our primary motive is not for money or even happiness, but for meaning. We are driven above all to understand the purpose and the meaning of our lives. And once that is understood... Even the most miserable conditions cannot upend our inner peace. Frankel said everything in life can be taken away from a person except for one thing. What's that one thing? It's the greatest human freedom to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. In other words, all kinds of things can and will happen to us, the good, the bad, but nobody can take away our ability to choose our attitude in life. Nobody. That's our choice. It seems impossible to me to live on the second mountain and not pay attention to faith and to spirituality. I'm not saying that because I think you have to be a person of faith to live a good life. I'm simply saying that part of the second mountain is learning to go deep. It's learning to move beyond the superficial, to get beneath the surface. Jean Venier recently passed away. I don't know if you saw that in the news. And Jean Venier was the one who started a community for the mentally disabled uh, first in Paris that would later be the first of many large communities throughout the world. And Veneer once said, we human beings are all fundamentally the same. We all belong to a common broken humanity. We all have wounded, vulnerable hearts. Each one of us needs to feel appreciated and understood. We all need help. Henry Nouwen, another great spiritual writer, would later leave Harvard and Yale to go live in the large community up in Canada. And so he left the prestige of the Ivy Leagues and the teaching and all of the accolades and the acclaim. Everybody knew who he was and they knew how smart he was. And he went to this community and they didn't care about any of that stuff. All they cared about was that he would sit at their table and have dinner with them. And that's where he started to see the kingdom of God alive and at work in that community. Through faith, we are humbled to come to terms with our brokenness. And through that brokenness, we find solidarity and strength with one another. 
Lastly this morning, the final commitment of the second mountain is to a community. Or for many of us, it might be to a few different communities. Brooks argues that we can look around today and we can see the evidence of loneliness and the fact that many people do not have a community where they feel like they belong, where they feel like somebody cares about them, where they feel like they are missed if they don't show up. Think about it. Think about the symptoms, the spiking suicide epidemic, shortened life expectancy, as I mentioned. Brooks says wherever there is a mass shooting, there's always a lonely man, yes, a lonely man, by the way, who, fe who fell through the cracks of society, who lived a life of solidarity, of solitary disappointment, and who one day decided to try to make a blood-drenched leap from insignificance to infamy. The symptoms are everywhere. We must learn to treat the cause. He says on the first mountain, the emphasis is on the unencumbered self, individual accomplishment, creating a society in which everybody is free to be themselves. But the second mountain is a thick society. The organizations and the communities in that society leave a mark. You see, we have to stop railing against organizations and institutions because despite their flaws, and they all have them, they provide us with the opportunities to have connection and to have relationships with each other. We need to work together to create more thick societies where relationships are strong and genuine, where people feel like they belong and that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And what that means is that we have to get over always having to be right. Because in communities, everybody can't always be right. It's impossible. We have to get over demonizing people with whom we disagree. We have to learn to see the common humanity even when we vehemently disagree with somebody else. Let's have healthy debates about topics, about issues, about beliefs. But at the end of the day, I think living on the second mountain means that we learn to appreciate and to honor each other as people, as children of God. And as we say and believe in the Christian church, that which unites us is far greater than that which divides us. But we must learn to lift that up and not just focus on the divisions and the differences. At the end of the book, The Second Mountain, Brooks offers what he calls the Relationist Manifesto, where he says this, and I'll close with, with these words. He says, a society is a system of relationships. If there is no trust at the foundations of society, if there is no goodness, care, or faithfulness, relationships crumble, and the market and the state crash to pieces. If there are no shared norms of right and wrong, no sense of common attachments, then the people in the market and the state will rip one another to shreds as they, as they vow for, for power and money. The health of a society depends on voluntary unselfishness. Or as Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. One last word this morning. We all suffer in life, we all have pain, we all hurt, we all go through situations that we didn't necessarily choose. But you can be broken in life or you can be broken open. 
And somebody once said that pain that is not transformed gets transferred. It gets projected onto other people, onto the people that we love, because we haven't dealt with it and we haven't let it strengthen us and make us stronger. And I think a big part of the second mountain is learning to use our suffering, to use our pain to become deeper and to be transformed. Amen.